Well, it's been a pleasure for me, um, since Troy has been away, to spend more time with Pastor Bill. And um, Pounders has taken a lot of our money, <laughs> but uh, it, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, I've been talking to Bill every week. I would ask, as he's had three sermons in a row, I would ask, you know, how he's doing, how he's feeling. Week one began with tired, but by the time we get to last week, week number three, he said, well, I asked him, you know, how are you doing? He said, Oh, I'm exhausted. And um, so while Bill has been preaching, I've been kind of sitting back and twiddling my thumbs in the office. Um, but not only has Bill been preaching, um, and now, you know, it's going to be my double, I guess, as Bill called it last week, he's still been working hard. Uh, yesterday, he did a funeral here, and then when the bathroom flooded, he got the shop vac out yesterday as well. So, Bill has been very, very busy. So, it's a pleasure uh, for me to work with you, Bill, and uh, for us to have you as our pastor. We are in John 6, and I found myself saying what the disciples said in verse 60, although we didn't read verse 60. As I was studying for this message, I I was saying, wow, this is a hard saying. I think this is helpful to acknowledge up front how difficult this passage is because when Jesus spoke it, he intended for it to be hard to hear. The key that started the ball rolling for me, though, as I was literally scratching my head, was verse 26, and I think verse 26 is the key to Jesus' entire discourse. He answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. This crowd is seeking Jesus, which is normally a good thing when you seek Jesus, but they're seeking him for the wrong reason, so in this case, It's a bad thing. Compare the beginning of chapter 6 and the end. It starts with Jesus multiplying bread to feed at least a multitude of 5,000. It ends with Jesus being abandoned by almost all of them. What's in the middle? Hard sayings intended to challenge the crowds, even maybe to drive them away. Why would Jesus do that. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. The crowds were more interested in what Jesus could do for them rather than in Jesus himself. They were seeking Jesus's hand rather than his face. So in one sense, Jesus has purposefully erected a barrier As they cross the lake after the feeding, their bellies are rumbling. They see him and say in verse 25 something like, Rabbi, you snuck out on us. When did you get here? Now, if Jesus wanted to invite them in to keep the big party going, verse 26 would have actually said, I walked here across the water. And get this, I walked over the waves. But instead, the hard sayings begin. Hard here does not refer to hard to understand, but instead hard to hear and accept. So since the Jews sought his hand rather than his face, 
And Jesus did not give them a dish of more bread, but a dish of hard sayings. They grumbled against him. Grumbling begins our passage in verse 41. And in in fact, John lays out nicely the two things that the crowd opposed him over, verses 41 and 52. That will be two of our points. We'll get to that soon, but I can't skip over this grumbling. So number one on your outline is simply grumbling. There are multiple references in this chapter to Moses and to these Jews' ancestors who ate the bread called manna in the wilderness. And then I noticed grumbling in verses 41 and 43, and I was again reminded of that Exodus generation. So we're going to go back to the Israelites to help us interpret and apply these hard sayings of Jesus. Turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, and follow me on this totally planned rabbit trail. Now, the Israelites were miraculously saved by God from Egyptian slavery through Moses and his brother Aaron. The Exodus was the great saving act of the Old Testament. Out of slavery and bondage, God led them through the parted waters of the Red Sea toward the new land that he promised to them. They just had to go through some desert to get there. But that's when the grumbling began. Three days, okay, three days after walking through the parted waters of the Red Sea, a cycle of grumbling against Moses uh, begins in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 as they approach Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. God provides for them despite their grumblings, but grumbling becomes a pattern in numbers. God leads them from Sinai to Cana to the cusp of the land promised to them. And then cycle two begins in Numbers 11. Verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So, the Lord clearly takes grumbling seriously. Let's pause to say that. But once the fire dies down, the grumbling returns. Look at verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. They missed their slavery. Why? Because they were well fed. They obviously were not satisfied with the manna that God provided for them daily. And then Moses' brother and sister turn against him. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he married, for he married a Cushite woman. Then they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. 
The Israelites are crumbling at the edge of the promised land as they complain about their misfortune, about their food, and about their leadership. But this is nothing compared to chapter 14. Spies are sent to scope out the land in chapter 13 because, again, they are literally on the edge of the promised land. The report is negative. So the people totally forget that God saved them once and he promised to give them this land. So look at their response in chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Then they said to one another, yeah, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. They want to choose a new leader, abandon God, and return to slavery. So God gives them what they desire. In verses 20 through 25, God promises that none of that generation will enter the land promised except for Joshua and Caleb, who did not grumble. Moses leads them back to the desert until they all die, showing again the seriousness of grumbling. So back in the desert, the grumbling continues. Turn over to chapter 20. But surprise, uh, the Lord still provides for them despite their grumbling. So look at chapter 20, verse 8. Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. But Moses is getting beat down and all this complaining is weighing upon him. Look at verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. The congregation drank and their livestock. But Moses did not obey God. He did not speak to the rock, but struck it in frustration. In verse 12, God punishes him by promises that, promising that he too will die in the desert and not reach the land promised. But notice in verse 12 the reason why Moses is being punished. It says, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What bubbled up to the surface, what the people saw, was Moses striking the rock in frustration over their grumbling. But the Lord revealed the unbelief in Moses' heart. The same for the Israelites. As a whole, what bubbled up to the surface was grumbling, but the, the Lord revealed their hearts in Numbers 14, 11. And the Lord said to Moses, 
How long will his people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. Grumbling is disobedience, but not just disobedience. It's a matter of faith. So your next blank. Grumbling is a serious spiritual issue. It's the fruit produced out of an unbelieving heart. Chris Treadway, you need to be up here for this next part because you helped me so much. When a team is winning, fans flock to the games in support of them. The Israelites were winning through the plagues and through, as they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. But when a team starts losing, fans grumble and then abandon their team. Israel became that losing team in the desert at least in their minds. The Israelites had certain expectations, which obviously included no ounce of hardship. They expected God to provide for them on their terms. And when God left their expectations unmet, they faithfully grumbled until they threatened to abandon the whole thing and return to Egypt. Why? Because they did not believe in God. When you trust someone, You will go with that person no matter where they take you because you know them and you trust that their character will always treat you well. So Israel did not trust God. Their desert wanderings and their complaining lips prove it. Now all of us have a vault in our hearts containing the expectations for our lives. These expectations are what we daydream about. They're the keys to what will make us happy, we think. We have expectations for everything. Our spouse needs to look and act in a certain way. Um, Expectations for our house, our cars, the amount or the quality of our stuff, our kids and what they need to be like, our job, our salary, the timing that we receive things and get to do things. So everyone now is shifting uncomfortably in their seats because we know where this is going. We all complain when we don't get what we want. And it goes much deeper than our thoughts and words. It's because we don't believe in God enough. We don't believe that when God gives us something difficult or when God withholds something from us, that he's actually following Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We complain because we don't believe. So let me clarify. Yes, there are situations when genuine injustice is occurring and when people treat you in sinful ways and you need to tell others about it to remedy the situation. But I'm talking about the general, everyday situations that we find ourselves in since we live in a fallen, sinful world. God often puts us in difficult situations intended to increase our faith, yet How often do we respond with grumbling words and a bitter spirit instead? The Lord is good every day, and he will always give you what you need, even if that's different than your expectations, because he loves you. So now, jumping back to John 6, the crowds hitch their wagons to a winning team, to a guy who gives great bread. 
they even identified Jesus as the prophet that Moses promised would come in John 6:14. So they seek to make him king in verse 15. But then their bread guy disappears. So they search for him around the lake, but rather than meeting their expectations of more bread, he gives them a dish of hard sayings. The crowd built an image of him in that vault of their hearts that was different than the real Jesus that they found. So they grumbled about him because they wanted a king and they wanted a winning team in their own making defined by their own terms. But as they came around the lake, they got Jesus instead. So verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Your second point. They grumbled about Jesus' origin. They grumbled about Jesus and his origin. Jesus had previously said, like in verses 33 and 38, that he came down from heaven. The crowd is thinking on the natural plane in verse 42. From where? We know his mom and dad. They're not from heaven. They're from Nazareth. Then Jesus gives them a command in verse 43. Do not grumble. He follows that up with deep theology in verses 44 through 47 that illustrates that he is truly from heaven because only one with heavenly origin could have such deep knowledge. Now these verses are difficult to understand. I'm sure brothers and sisters in Christ have broken fellowship over them. Churches have split, I'm sure, somewhere in time over verses like this. So I'll just say up front that I don't fully understand these verses. And you should never follow someone who says that they do fully understand uh, these verses because you will uh, soon find that this person's head does not fit through normal-sized door frames. So Jesus describes here in these verses why some people come to believe him and why some do not. Why some embrace him and why some grumble instead. So let's jump in. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, the Titanic has been uh, in the news again recently, 111 years after it sank. The wreckage was digitally mapped by a deep-sea mapping company, and the 3D map was released recently. So you can look that up this afternoon. I only bring up the Titanic because the unsinkable ship sank by a collision with an iceberg. So when the crew saw the iceberg... They only saw a small portion of it. As little as one-eighth of an iceberg may be visible above the water. With icebergs and with spiritual matters, we can see but the tip of the iceberg. And in these verses, along with what Pastor Bill preached last week in verses 35 through 40, 
Jesus alludes to the spiritual matters underneath the surface of the water that we cannot see. So if we think about spiritual matters as the part of the iceberg that we can see, the part above the water, there can be positive and negative experiences. So consider the positive. People putting their faith in Jesus by confessing their sins and pleading for salvation. There's also the negative part that we can see. People grumbling against Jesus and not believing against him, uh, in him. So this is the tip of the iceberg, the part of the spiritual matters that we can see. But Jesus explains in these verses that there's more going on under the surface of the water. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Father and the Son work together in the salvation of any person. The Father sent the Son, and then the Father draws people to himself for salvation. And what does the Son do in these ver- this verse? The Son will raise that person up on judgment day. Verse 44 is actually the negative aspect of verse 37 from last week. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So the practical outworking of this in our experience are those people believing in Jesus at a particular point in time and space. So verse 37, all those given to the Son by the Father will come to believe in Jesus. Verse 44, no one is able to come unless the Father draws him. So verse 45 explains further the Father's actions of verse 44. Jesus paraphrases from Isaiah chapter 54. He says, they will all be taught by God. So, those that the Father draws will be taught by God. That promise will be fulfilled, and they will come to Jesus through the Father's revelation of himself to, the, to that person. So, those that are drawn by God, verse 44, are the same people from verse 45 who hear and learn from the Father, and therefore, because of that, they come to the Son. And how does one come to the Son? Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So now the question we could ask, who do we believe in? Verse 46, believe in the one who is from God, the only one to see and know the Father. The Father determined that the Son's work of leaving heaven, taking on flesh, living a sinless life, dying in the place of sinners, rising from the dead, and returning to heaven would not be in vain. The Father determined not just to make salvation possible, the Father is not sitting on his hands waiting to see if any would come, but he determined to make salvation certain by drawing people to come to the Son by believing in Him. Why me is the best question to ask. Why am I a Christian? 
did God see some quality in me that was favorable? So he drew me to his son. Did God look forward in time and find that I was going to believe in Jesus? So God went backwards in time because of what he saw over here to draw me to Jesus in the past. No, John Piper writes. Look at verse 44. God did not see the quality in you, so then he drew you. God worked in you first. The Father's drawing to the Son precedes your coming. Your coming to the Son requires the drawing to happen first. So God was not like that team captain in elementary school dodgeball that picked you for his team because you were talented. God drew you simply because he loved you. So let's return to the iceberg analogy. I hope it, this is helpful and not confusing. Think of this difficult theology of salvation like an iceberg floating on the ocean. Part of that iceberg you can see if you're in a boat on top of the water. And part of the iceberg you can't see. Consider verses 44 and 45 to be part of the iceberg under the water. Jesus referred to it here but we can't see it and we will never fully understand it. But there's a part of the iceberg that we can see and it's above the water, verse 47. People believing in Jesus and receiving eternal life. So celebrate the part of the iceberg that you can see. Respect the part of the iceberg that you can't see. Do not grumble or fear what's under the water. Do not despise what you can't see. Just accept that there's great mystery. And there's one iceberg. What's below the water and what's above the water. And somehow that's together. For example, notice the word unless repeated in these two verses. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now that's a true statement from Jesus. Plus, there's another true statement in verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So the Father will do the drawing, but you have to do the feasting. So there's one iceberg, what's below the water and what's above, together. Now, there, there's a great invitation in this passage. Jesus described this invitation in all different ways, but they mean the same thing. Verse 45, come to me. Verse 47, believe in me. 51, eat of me. 53, eat my flesh and drink my blood. 54, feed on my flesh, drink my blood. 56, feed on my flesh, drink my blood. 57, feed on me. 58, feed on this bread. Two people in that crowd in John 6. And two people here can listen to Jesus' words and his invitation. One will grow and one may wither. Why? Because only one hears. Are you hearing and learning from God as verse 45 describes? Ask yourself, how am I listening? Am I listening with criticism? You will never hear and never learn from God. With superiority, you will never hear and never learn from God. 
What about indifference? You will never hear and never learn from God. What about with impatience? You will never hear and never learn from God. So Jesus invites, almost pleads in this passage for the crowd to listen to him. So why listen to him? Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus comes from God. That's why you're supposed to listen to him. Yet their grumbling turns to disputing. Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They grumbled in verse 41 because he said that he came down from heaven. But now he adds that he came down to give life to the world. How is he going to achieve that? Look at verse 51. If anyone eats of this bread of Jesus from heaven, that person will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So notice four things, and you have four quick blanks on your outline. This action in verse 51 is a voluntary. Because Jesus says, I will give. It is Jesus' choice. Notice, uh, second, that this action is substitutionary. It's on behalf of the world because Jesus says, I will, give, I will give for the life of the world. Third, notice that this action is physical because Jesus gives his own flesh. And notice that this action is in the future because Jesus says, I will give. It's voluntary substitutionary, physical, and future. Jesus is referring to his cross. So number three, from grumbling to disputing about Jesus's death. Jesus's death. The blessings that Jesus promises in these closing verses are stunning. In verse 54, he promises eternal life. And he promises to raise a person up on the last day. Essentially, Jesus will not forget about you, but will raise you up. In verse 55, he offers true food and true drink, which satisfies. 56, Jesus offers mutual abiding. A person abiding in him and Jesus abiding in that person. That's the closeness of the relationship that Jesus is offering. In verse 57, he offers life again. But in verse 58, he promises that that life will have no end. But the way to gain these stunning promises is through Jesus' flesh. Now, Jesus uses flesh in these verses just like John wrote in 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word's repeated in 6.51. And the bread that I will give 
for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus took on human flesh to offer that flesh to benefit others. So we must continue to read these verses metaphorically. He's not advocating for cannibalism. Instead, his language has become more graphic as the crowd's grumbling turns to disputing, which will lead to the decision point of desertion in verses 60 and following. But Jesus is continuing the same invitation theme. Look at verse 40 and 54. They are parallel. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The verbs looking and believing in 40 have been substituted with eating and drinking in 54. So Augustine of Hippo wrote, believe and you have eaten. My mentor from seminary, Dr. Cook, wrote, Jesus uses this graphic language to describe the total commitment of his followers to him. So your next blank, believing in Jesus is total commitment and dependence on him. So much so that it could be described as feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. But that's how you find eternal life. So as we shift to a time of communion, I just say that these verses have been interpreted and applied wrongly. Some in church history have applied these verses to the communion time, teaching that as you eat the bread, illustrating Jesus' flesh, and drink the juice, illustrating his blood, then you will find life through the act of eating and drinking. But Jesus here is not pointing forward to uh, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, but he's pointing forward to his cross. It's very clear throughout the Bible that the only way uh, to find salvation, to be saved from your sins, is to believe in Jesus. Even this passage makes clear that believing is necessary for salvation, not by completing a work, not by checking a box, like eating and drinking communion. So look at uh, chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Well, Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, whom he has sent. Salvation is by believing in Jesus alone, not by any other works that we can do. So communion, as we take it, is a time reserved for believers only. It's almost an enacted parable to where you're, to remind you that your spiritual life, where it's found and to teach you again on whom you are depending So if you believe in Jesus, you have life in him because he hung on that cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed. Jesus paid for your sins with his own life so that you would not have to pay for your sins. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, let the bread and the juice pass you by. 
because you'd be hypocritically identifying with Jesus outwardly while your heart is far from him. And Jesus knows your heart. For you, this time is an invitation to depend on Jesus. So Jesus wants his followers to depend on him to the point of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The Jews were taught to have respect for the blood of animals because of the sacrificial system. And Leviticus 17.11 explains that system. It reads, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So God would accept the blood of an animal, which is the life of an animal, in the place of human blood and life. The blood of the innocent victim was given for the life of the one who had sinned, because sin destroys fellowship with God, and all sin is against God. So atonement is possible only through the shedding of blood. But then the New Testament, the author of Hebrews writes that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It only delayed their punishment. So the greater sacrifice has now come down from heaven. His body nailed to a cross, strung up on a hill. His body was broken and his blood was shed. And we sing, oh precious is the, fl- is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we're about to sing that song together. What can wash away my sin? What's the answer to that question? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So Jesus closes his discourse in this way, and that's how we will close as well. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and they died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So the bread of life has come. Will you believe? As the deacons come forward, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. We are dependent on your grace. Not just for our salvation, especially for our salvation, but we're dependent on your grace for every single day. Thank you for this next heartbeat. Thank you for this next breath. Thank you for these next words. But we know that as I um, feebly pray, Jesus is listening to even my words. Thank you very much for the sacrifice that he gave, which we discussed this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us turn our minds and our hearts, our attention on you as we sing this song, which represents what we have been studying about. There's nothing but the blood of Jesus that can save us from our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.